is the Chartographers. Everybody, you're listening to the final happy hour minisode of season three as we talk about Billy Joel and his eccentricities and his ex-wives and his whatnots. Uh, it's a thing that we do. It is Evan Soddy, it is Taryn O'Reilly, it is special guest returning for the second time in his chartographer's history, Bryce Nizel. Bonsoir. How are you doing, Bryce? Good. I got to talk about Billy Joel for way longer than anybody should be allowed to talk about. Unless you're Billy Joel. Or yes. Billy Joel Sound Guy. Right. You know, only one of those <laughs> One of those two. Uh, so, listen, you were here at the Happy Hour Mini, so we had a great time. We ranked all those albums, but now we need to do the thing we do at the start of every Happy Hour Mini, so, which is, guys, genuinely, what's the worst Billy Joel song? Uh, we didn't start the fire. I see. It's a uh, bad. It, yeah, I wouldn't call no. it the worst. It's not the worst. Yeah. It's not good. Oh, I think it's firmly the worst. And in fact, so um, for those listening to the, it's comma, not his bad uh, blood. Excuse me, Sky Comma Cast. <laughs> um, uh, there is a great article on Vulture ranking all 121 of Billy Joel songs. Uh-huh. Uh huh. At 121, it has the Mexican Connection, which is the very forgettable instrumental at the end of Street Life Serenade. Yeah, that's almost like entirely fine. Yeah. But at number 120, it has We Didn't Start the Fire, with which I firmly agree. I I I disagree. I think like Christy Lee. Look, there aren't. There, eh. That's boring, he doesn't. He doesn't have bad. a lot of like really overtly horrible songs, There's which I think is why songs, yeah. we didn't start the fire is like an easy choice. But like, how about all about soul off of River of Dreams? <laughs> or like, how about how about? I mean, yeah, Christy Lee's a good choice. Eh. Anything off of the bridge? Yeah, big man <laughs> on Mulberry Street. Ugh. Guys, he fucks his piano. On so, the what is your pick, Bryce? We didn't yeah, start the fire. I'm not okay. Sure. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought you were just reading from the list. And no, yeah. I, I legit. Like, no, he gave his opinion, and then he gave someone else's opinion to support to justify his, his opinion. Yes, yes. yes. Here's the it's thing called about... a straw man argument. <laughs> Here's the thing about we didn't start the fire, is that main as you talked about in the primary episode, the whole dun, 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 that in and of itself as a melodical motif doesn't have to be bad. But then the subsequent baby boomer listing of like all this shit that happened, and by the guy, and by the way, guys, this wasn't our fault. It just is history unfolding. I have a whole English PhD bullshit version of this song that I have in my mind. Wait, so you're trying to say that by releasing "We Didn't Start the Fire," he's trying to like absolve his generation from responsibility of all of the things that are listed in the song? Yes. That is a fucking stretch. <laughs> that is some academia BS it. right here's, now. Here's the thing. There's way nowhere near that much thought went into this song. You were giving him... Well... You're giving him... I guess you're not giving credit, but like you are giving credence to like... I am giving credence Clearwater Revival to this That's song, some yes. like delusions but of grandeur. No, it's not delusions of grandeur. Here's the thing about this song. Is I recognize that he put way less thought into that song than I have put into it, just as someone listening to it and reading it. But the things that he does not think about in constructing those lyrics, which are obvious, are the things that are interesting. And the the interesting things about that song are that he thinks that all of that sequence of historical events that he lists is just things that happen and we try to make sense of them. And it's like, well, you know, we didn't start this fire, but, you know, 
other people did or other people contributed to it. And so that's the way it is. And that's like, and, and I'm not like the only person. In fact, Billy Joel himself has said it's the worst song that he's written or the worst song that is to get popular. Yeah. And so, I can understand. It's the worst song of his to get popular. Yeah. It's, and I'm sure he is not super thrilled about it being one of his only three number one songs. But yeah, like, Wed Gaze, Fenway, and Judd Apatow. Oh, so. God. <laughs> Stop. Stop writing new lyrics so we didn't start the It fire. doesn't need new lyrics. It doesn't time. deserve that. I, I get what you're saying, but. Facebook, I Baba think Duck. I also, it also sort of reflects. <laughs> 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 it sort of. This- Facebook Babadook is a pretty good rhyme. I gotta recommend Facebook Babadook Joe DiMaggio. No, I, I, okay, I hear what you're saying. I don't, I feel like it's less of a trying to give away the responsibility of all these events and more just like the world is garbage and it always has been, which is definitely a view that I agree and sympathize yeah. with. Okay, guys, there will listen. always be horrible people in the world doing horrible shit. And you, yeah. as an everyday member of the unwashed masses, can't do unwashed anything about I am. most yeah. of that. Yeah, that was a hard... I'm, look, yeah. I'm not saying it's Roasted. a great song, but I also think that you are looking at it a little more harshly okay than so five fair, minutes fair. in we've talked about nothing but we didn't start the fire i would love to change it around a little bit to talk about another garbage fire which is billy joel getting fucked not by his ex-wives but uh more importantly by the industry because as we mentioned and you mentioned it briefly a little bit during a uh, part one and i want to expand upon a little bit the mastering of cold spring harbor is the first time billy joel truly got fucked it was yes. just straight up recorded on the wrong kind of tape yeah it yeah. was sped up a little bit so he said a lot of chipmunk okay that's the other thing to clear the air, he said he sounded like a chipmunk. He didn't literally, it wasn't like full Alvin and the chipmunks. It wasn't like sped up past the point. Okay, stop. It wasn't sped up like past the point of recondition. It it was sped up like a half step. Like just, it just slightly raised the key of every song. Yeah. Which like, so to him, it sounded weird. But to people who have never heard of Billy Joel before. It was like, oh, this it was is like, the guy. Nah. Yeah. Also... One thing to maybe mention is that I realized a couple hours before we started recording this that digitally the only version you can find of this album was the remastered version that was released in 83 Yeah. with like the second half of like basically literally all the songs are shorter and I think part of that might have been the the speed fixing that they did but also part of that was just they just like clipped shit off there was one song on here that's a piano ballad and it didn't start that way like on the original record it was six minutes instead of 250 and there was like all this orchestration and like drum and bass and then they took all of that out and they just put out the vocals and piano version on the remaster so like the version of Cold Spring Harbor that we probably all listened to this week, his vocals sound better because that's been fixed, but like the songs have been altered. Yeah. It's just a, a thing to know. That so it was not like the original release. Yeah. That was the one, uh, one time Billy Joel got fucked. But I mean, again, he persevered. The other but time was right immediately after, after this. this. Uh, he got uh, Columbia Records, record, saw him, and just like, okay, this guy's got talent. We want to sign him. Except the thing is that with Cold Spring Harbor, it came out on a different label. And so uh, mm-hmm. whoever the guy was that was managing the contract on there was like, okay, you have Billy Joel. We want Billy Joel. We're going to buy you out. And we're going to make it worth your while, too. And then signed one of the most ludicrous agreements I've ever heard in my life. 
They went ahead, they signed Billy Joel, but Billy Joel, when he puts out something else, you, record label owner guy for Cold Spring Harbor, you're going to get 25% of publishing and royalties for the next 10 albums. Yes. That's the contract. And thankfully he was able to get out of that after nylon fucking curtain a full 10 years later. Like, but like that is the worst deal I've is, ever heard. Think about think about what we talked about on the Tom Petty episode mm-hmm. with Tom Petty being in the late seventies, one of the first people to really rebel against the record labels. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that at this time, this transition, this is between Cold Spring Harbor and Piano Man, so this is probably nineteen seventy two. This is still like peak era of Motown where like they don't even give any of their artists any sort of creative control whatsoever. Obviously, he's not in that position, but this is an era where record labels are the only reason you're getting distribution. It's the only reason you have mm-hmm. studio time. They are the reason you have a career at all. And, and so they still matter. And, yes, right, absolutely. Exactly. And so they felt right taking the lion's share of proceeds from all of these records. That was very normal. And so while 25% to us, that is a horrible negotiation. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like Unheard out of, of the question. Yeah. In this Especially for an artist who, per Cold Spring Harbor, didn't really develop but any But it's hits. especially frustrating because it wasn't just like the person with the rights. It was very specifically the guy who fucked up the sound of Cold Spring Harbor was the exact same man uh-huh. who was getting the benefits of this 25% deal. Yeah. And it took Billy Joel years of fighting to get the rights to his songs back. Yeah. And release And now. the masters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then of course there's the other time there where it was his second wife uh, who he I can't remember her name off the top of my head whoever the second wife was, Wikipedia. And uh, essentially, she was like supporting him and helping him, but eventually it was just like, I need a new manager, and she took over his role as manager, and ultimately kind of strained their marriage because essentially they were in a business relationship yeah. instead of a romantic relationship. And so because she was like so overwhelmed and because he was getting more and more successful as time went on, she's like, I need some help. She brought in her brother to like help out, like handle some of her duties, what have you. After the divorce happened, he kind of remained on the finance side of things, but also just so happened to start stealing money from Billy Joel several times over. Right. Buying houses, buying cars, buying absurd shit. And by the end of it, I think it was like to the tune of $90 million. $90 million. Billy Joel found out because he, he hired some actual people to like, uh, you know, accountants to look into it. And this was early 90s, right? When I he finally so. found out it was when he was broke and the rest of his team was like, how can you be broke? You've had mm. some of the most successful albums of all time. And then they looked at the finances and they were like, oh, because... This guy's been stealing all of it. Yeah, and so then he sued him, got a $2 million judgment awarded towards him, but because he already spent all the money, couldn't pay it. So Billy Joel was broke again. And at that point, he's just like, I think he literally was in a fucking moment. It's like, fuck it. Went out on tour. Went out on a big hits tour. And just to be like, you know, Literally yeah. the same thing that Nilsson did. Yeah. Except yeah. Nilsson had a much harder time bringing yeah. his family out of poverty, but it was like a very similar story. It cheated out of most of his money by... A corrupt, you know, financial guy uh-huh. on his team, and then like had to go on tour and like restart his career from scratch, basically. Because like I believe this was after River of Dreams. This mm-hmm. was after yeah. Billy Joel had already decided, like, I'm not putting out more music. I'm done. 
And then he went on like a hundred and twelve date tour and made three hundred million dollars. I think it was sixty like, million dollars. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's yeah. how you fix that. Yeah, I mean, but you're, you're really jolly. You can do that. And then of course he starts doing his joint tours with Elton John, which were a staple for a long time. Or the two of them. And apparently he was on the Colbert a while ago, and uh, Colbert asked him. Uh, he says like, well, you know, uh, Elton John says, you know, you put out twelve pop albums. Elton John says you need to put out more albums. And then Billy Joel's like, yeah, well, I think Elton John needs to put out less. Yeah. And I was Roasted. just like, yeah, like damn. I mean, the thing is. Like he's not well, wrong. Yeah, also, yeah, by the time yeah. by the time the early two thousands came around, it's like, did I mean no one gave a shit about what Elton John was putting out yeah. new? Yeah. Well, and Aside here's from the NPR where, crowd. and I compiled this today. I call it the quotable Billy Joel. Oh boy, in which he is way more honest about himself and other people as an artist than, frankly, most other artists would be in his position. Yeah. How long is so, this segment gonna go? Not very long. Okay. <laughs> so in an Jesus. interview, in an interview with a New Yorker. Billy Joel said, um, in response to the accusation that he was being derivative, the author writes, As for derivative, Joel won't deny it. He loved the Beatles, Ray Charles, Otis Redding, and Smokey Robinson. So why not try to sound like them? At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 1999, he was introduced by Ray Charles. Joel said, I know I've been referred to as derivative. Well, I'm damn guilty. I'm derivative as hell. He said that if the Hall of Fame disqualified people on the basis of being derivative... There wouldn't be any white people there, which is pretty damn self-conscious. Yeah. Of a also, person. just accurate. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Accurate. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then um, my favorite thing recently was um, his description of because he's been uh, he has a Madison Square Garden residency, which he's had for quite some time, mm-hmm. and. The obvious question, because many other artists in his stature have taken this opportunity, is what would you do for a farewell tour? And Billy Joel said this, If I had a farewell tour, I would have uh, the stage as a living room set, couch, TV, coffee table, food, and there's bulletproof glass between me and the audience. Then I come up and lay down on the couch. I grab the remote and start watching TV. The crowd, after a couple minutes, goes, fuck this, and starts tossing shit at the glass. (laughs) (laughs) So... Like, the thing I like about Billy Joel, and it doesn't necessarily come out in what we just talked about because his career is quite voluminous, is that he is extremely self-conscious about the stuff that he's made. And in the interview with Colbert, which both of you just mentioned, he talks about how there are expectations of the song that he's supposed to perform, but ultimately, the songs that he really likes to play are the album cuts. Mm -hmm. They're not. I mean, scenes from an Italian restaurant, it's like Stairway to Heaven, where neither were technically, in the terms of how they were released, a single. But they were played on the radio quite yeah, extensively. played on FM radio. Yes. Yeah. And so, even though Scenes from Italian Restaurant isn't the single that, like, The Stranger or Moving Out was, we still know that song the same way. Mm-hmm. And that's the song for which he's known now. And Billy Joel, on the Colbert uh, interview, ultimately ranked Scenes from an Italian Restaurant as his best song. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many other songs that fill out that gap, which leads me to this next thing, which is the aforementioned uh, vulture inter or vulture piece on Billy Joel's the ranking of a hundred. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this uh, inter, this author, to his credit, ranked all of them. So I want you both to react in real time to this top ten ranking. I'm not going to read through all of it because obviously that'd be insufferable, and frankly, ten is insufferable. But number ten. The longest time, from. I mean, it is yeah. no, but it's an easy choice, so I get it. 
Number nine, and I firmly agree with this, I don't want to be alone from glass houses. That's weird. Meh. I like it. Number eight, Vienna from The Stranger, our number one choice. Again, I get it, but I just disagree. I adore there that There are so, much, so yeah. many better songs on that album. Number seven, Just The Way You Are from The Stranger also. I'd agree with that. I would rank Vienna higher, but I don't hate that. Number six, Miami 2017. Everyone Broadway. loves that fucking song. That's I critics I love that. Don't get song. it, and that's that was part of why I wanted. It predicted to put, Trump. No, it didn't. <laughs> Shut up. Not that's not even kind of what that song's about. <laughs> but like, I feel like Miami 2017 is really popular among New Yorkers. Yes, specifically because it has all these references. Yeah, but I feel like it's not that great. Of like he does the like propulsive movement and multi multi segment thing yeah. better later, and he it, as far as like storytelling songs go, it's not his strongest work. Like I just I I understand why it's a fan favorite, but it feels like it's a fan favorite just because it's supposed to be, and not to because me, it's actually that. Well, great. to me, it's the last of those prog songs like Captain Jack, where it's like kind of. Oh, way longer than it necessarily needs to be, but it's interesting, and there's like a lot of like those multi, the sweet like composition to it. The sweet life with Zach and Cody, yeah. I don't know, but I I feel like it's sweet composition. It doesn't it doesn't differentiate the movements that much. Like yes, there are different movements, but they all come back again. Like it still follows a standard like verse chorus structure with some extra sections like plugged in, but yeah. those sections all repeat. Like, it's not, it's not like a, oh, and now we have a whole new movement. Yeah. You know what I mean? All number right, six. Well, number five. Oh, number five. That was number, number six. six. Number five, the title track from An Innocent Man. This is, oh, th- was this one person's or was yes. this like Vulture one the person, Whole Man? one person. Okay, yeah. that, because there's no way that an entire publication would uh, consensusly agree like, uh, oh yeah, the it, title Innocent track man. from Innocent Man number is one four. of his best songs. Yeah. Which I firmly agree with. Maybe even slightly higher. Number four. Sleeping with a television on from Glass Houses. So weird. I like that song, but there's no way it's like uh-huh. that. Alright, and now we are in this one person who very diligently and way too overachieverly ranked all of 121 of Billy Joel's songs. I mean, I do that every episode. Number three. New York State of Mind from Turnstiles. Again, was this writer from New York? Number two. Probably. Only the Good Die Young from The Stranger, which I firmly disagree with. Number one, which I don't at all firmly disagree with, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant from The Stranger. I mean, it is. If you had asked me before this week, that's what I would have said my favorite was. It's still in my what, top five. What would you well, say your favorite yeah, is yeah. now? So it's moving out. a good question. Moving okay. out. Okay, Evan. I don't fucking know. Uh, I'll get to it in a second. But uh, partially moving out because that's... My dad put it on a very formative mix CD for me when I was in like seventh grade, and so it's like it's it's kind of seared in my memory. Even though it, like it wasn't my favorite at the time, but it's just like I can't deny the brilliance of like all of the little moments that it hits. For me, it's Vienna, undoubtedly. Kill Bill, Marvel films, or Casio Cortez. So. Uh... <laughs> I hate, I hate it. I hate it so much. 
I refuse to accept the legitimacy of that interpretation. Tamron just literally turned away from the microphone. That is the correct. That is the correct response. So, uh, Bryce, Bryce, do me a favor. Do me a favor. Put down, put down your computer. Put down your access to the internet. Okay. It's. I'm gonna probably play some game show music under this, but it's trivia time. So, I, Bryce, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Grammy Album of the Year process. But it's fine. It's totally fine. But Mr. Billy Joel has been nominated for the Grammy for Album of the Year five times. My question is, can you, I mean, I agree, (laughs) but can you name those five albums? I'll give you a point if you get at least three of them. Okay. I'm going to guess The Stranger. I'm going to guess 50 Second Street. I'm going to guess Glass Houses. Uh I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess... (laughs) I'm going to guess the nylon curtain. I'm going to guess River of Dreams. Four out of five. Not bad. Not bad, my friend. Very good. Which one's wrong? Uh, he got uh, the, uh, the Stranger was wrong, actually. Oh, was really? the Stranger was not nominated. His very first For- album of the year nomination was Fifty Second Street. And so Guys, then Innocent Man was the other one. I don't yes. Know, I don't know if you know this, but the Grammys. Get it wrong kind of every kind of, year. Are kind, yeah. of crop, are kind of problematic. Okay, so, yeah. and now here's the other thing. Of those five Album of the Year nominations, when did he win? Uh, oh, um, he won for uh, 50 seconds. My guess, is, my guess is Innocent Man. <laughs> 50 Second Street is the winning oh, answer, right. so as such, we get to give Rice a little bit of a, a, little bit of a thing here. Okay. There you go. Is a five CD album box set featuring... Yeah, Fifty Second Street and other Billy Joel albums. Y'all, I need, I need, uh, listeners out there in the Chartographers universe. Y'all, Chartog's nation. Y'all, I don't know the proper terminology. That y'all there isn't one. Yeah. we don't have a fan army. Y'all need to understand. Sucks. Y'all need to understand the nonsensicality of what was just handed to. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, it's kind of amazing that it exists. I don't even know how you can describe that as. Classics. Okay. So this is so this is a thing that exists not just with a label. So Sony Legacy made the product that was just handed to me. Um, other labels have versions of this. Uh, for example, uh, for any of you Warren Zevon fans, uh, hashtag Future talk, Chartographers episode. I'll be on it if you Ooh, so that desire. Would be a fun one. I would love the hell out of that. Episode. That's like season six material, yeah. though. Um, so they've done this thing, um, and it's basically the artist classics, and they release. Five to or four to five albums of an artist in a single slipcase CD, which I think they kind of do because, like, here's a couple albums that you probably do want. Here's ones that don't sell as well, but we can kind of put them together in a set yeah. so we can kind of move more copies of it. Which I get, you know, that's not the worst marketing decision but of all time. What Evan just handed to me <laughs> consists of the following albums. It's, it's classics. They're classics. They're not. Most of them are classics. Number one, Street Life Serenade. Number two. 50, or Turnstiles, excuse me. Number three, 52nd Street. Genuine classic. Number four, Stormfront. <laughs> hot garbage of a record. <laughs> and even worse, number five, Fantasies of Delusion, which we did not even bother to rank on the Star Talker's episode. Yeah. So congratulations! Grazie. Oh, what year did this collection come Let's out? Let's see. What did... Um, it had to be past 2000. I mean, right, because yeah. 2001 was when Fantasies and Delusions came out, which means that it was at least like 2003 or four. Yeah. Because... This came out in 2001. Oh. 
Yeah. Damn, so they knew right out the gate, like, the only so the, way no, that what this, people buy what Fantasy this was, What this was was an attempt to bolster the sales of Fantasy yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And for the record, though, uh, his song that he does as Dodger the Dog from the animated feature Oliver and Company. So fucking good. Yeah. I had completely forgot. I mean, the, the only reason to even remember that Oliver and Company was a Why film at all. It's, that's such a great song. To the extent that I thought it was Prince. <laughs> like before you know obviously you put it on for five seconds and i know it's not prince but like in my my memory's eye i had just attributed it to completely the wrong person because it doesn't it it does sound like classic billy joel but it's 1989 so yeah, there's yeah. that whole production side of things yep Mm-hmm. you don't usually associate with him. I know, and it's nice to see him do a vocal acting. Like, he thinks of himself as a funny guy. I think he's a funny guy. He's a bitter guy, so I think that helps out a little bit with it. But you know, Yeah, very yeah. dry humor. Very much so, absolutely. And yeah. yeah, I think he's very satisfied with his legacy so far. You know, like, he had his time at the top. He can tour anytime he wants and, you know, run off the hits. But yeah, he's he's doing good for himself. So, uh, just uh, Bryce... Wait, I want to okay. do a similar thing. Okay. That, uh, as to what you just did. Okay. So, Bryce... Bryce. Trivia time! Trivia time! Lord, what Trivia are music. his three number one songs? Ooh! My life... <laughs> Let me finish. I'm starting to keep all, all of myself to keep going. It's still rock and roll to me. And. Allentown. Allentown? I mean, you really don't know anything about how charts work, do you? <laughs> I, I don't. He's the, so, so, so the chain smokers are a band. We should probably. It's, you know. it's still rock and roll to me. Uh, tell her about it. And. We didn't start the fire. Interesting. I would have thought that he would have had more prior to We Didn't Start the Fire. That's same. I I was very surprised. But again, we have to remember that in the 70s, you could have a song that charted in the 30s on the top 40, and it was still a hit. A, yeah. a large number of people still knew that song. But he's Whereas all- like in today, if you don't hit the top 10... No one gives a fuck, and you don't get radio play. So it's also weird, though, because I was just checking. He's had a lot of number ones. He's had a lot of number three hits, too. Yeah, like Uptown Girl, number uh, three. Just the Way You Are, number three. My Life, number three. Uh, Uptown Girl, number three. And I thought there was one more. Or was there not? That was it. Oh, yeah, The River of Dreams, number three. So, like, it's just kind of a weird thing. Which is also weirdly one of his highest-selling singles, uh-huh. River uh, of Dreams. In the, because in the everyone knew they didn't need to buy the album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm convinced that's what it was. Yeah. Ah, good times. Uh, any other Billy Joel thoughts? Um, all I will say is this, is that I adore his music. I adore him as a person, in large part because... He recognizes, um, in fact, I have oh, Jesus here Christ. a comment on what his farewell tour should be like. You told us this. Yeah, you already said this. I did? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I will show you're, you're that. Wrong. <laughs> well, here's a, here's, here's a better question. Here's a better question. <laughs> this is actually amazing. Here's a better question, Bryce. And okay. I mean this genuinely, truly. Sure. Why did you want us to do Billy Joel? Oh, no, I know why. Actually, this is a slight, a slight tangent. Because I remember, for those of you who heard the uh, Adele song off her album 25, uh, When We Were Young, which is a lovely little song, it was co-written by a guy named Tobias Tesso Jr. 
And I remember this when this guy came out, he had an album, and he's basically a vocal piano songwriter type guy. And critics jizzed hard over him. Like, like his and album he sucks. Fun. Yeah. And, but the thing is, I remember Bryce telling me at the time how upset he was because how are all of you motherfuckers liking this little brat at the piano and still hating on Billy Joel? Yes. I didn't remember that. Yeah. I guess well, there were... I didn't realize that Billy Joel was so. Well, Critically, there were because... there were there were two pieces in popular media about Billy Joel that led me to the reaction that you just described against Tobias Jessup Jr. One of which was a piece describing Billy Joel as the Donald Trump of pop music. Who the uh, fuck wrote that? That's... It was on Slate. It was hot. I think it was hot. That's hot shit. garbage. Yeah. That's um, and the other one was um, or no, sorry, the piece which I'm about to name, which I believe was like uh, Billy Joel is like the worst pop artist ever or something to that effect um which was on slate and it was i i couldn't relate to it because by the time that that piece was written which was like 2009 2010 i felt to myself i was like yeah like i get it like maybe you don't love the music that your parents listen to yes i understand that like there are so many people that are better punching bags than billy joel absolutely my thing about the the whole like people not taking Billy Joel seriously or whatever. It's like, I, you know, obviously they did a very long tour together, but even in the era, Billy Joel and Elton John were the piano dudes and they mm-hmm. were very much like in a similar vein. They were compared to each other. And I can't understand how anyone would prefer Elton John over <laughs> Billy Joel. I literally, and that's as a gay man, I'm saying this Elton John has a couple, like, all-time wonderful hits. I get it. I understand why they're popular. But, like, when you look... And I have listened to a couple Elton John albums, like, the quote-unquote good ones, and they are fucking garbage. Like, <laughs> I just... I When you look at, like, the consistency of Billy Joel's songwriting and the, the like, the experiments that he does, you know, there's not a ton of them, but, like... You know, he can play with a seven-minute song and make it feel immediate and interesting for that entire length. And, like, Elton John can't fucking do that. And so I don't understand why... But there's completely... Elton John is held on a higher level than Billy Joel pretty consistently in pop pop culture. And I don't understand it all. And to to your question with why I like Billy Joel is I understand superficially why a lot of contemporary critics don't like him because he's associated with the baby boomers. He's associated with, like, 70s. I mean, like, the song Mainstream which even pop, I acknowledge... Pop. You can even, say that even, about plenty of people. Well, even the song which I acknowledge is his best, uh, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, is this catalog of, like, 1970s coupledom. And but it's also a catalog of 1970s coupledom going wrong. Right. But, and, and in fact, There's I think that one, dark of, side. Yeah. One, of, one of the most misinterpreted lyrics because it's very easy to superficially interpret, is, um, and that's the story of Brenda and Eddie, can't tell you, Marks, I've told you already. And a lot of people interpret that as like, oh, he's just trying to fill the verse, and it's like, no, he's not willing to say more about that, because if he says any more about that, he acknowledges how hollow and shallow and ultimately defeatist that vision of life is. So why I quote-unquote stand for Billy Joel as much as I do is that I... You could just say Stan. It's a common enough 
word in the you know anyway, popular his intellectual comments. circles. He doesn't want to be you know construed. I grew up with Billy Joel, and then by the time I came, became a music critic, I learned that he was not a cool person to like. And I'm not and a group. A, I'm not a groupthink person, so I didn't buy that. But I was like, why don't right. you think that and I think he's that's cool fair. to unlike? And the reasons that I think that people perceive that he's uncool to like are all hot garbage. And the thing about him that I like is that let's reflect on the fact that this is a guy who ended with River of Dreams, could have very easily put out four or five, five more pop records of utter crap. and made great money. I mean, maybe not as much money as he would have around the era of The Stranger, but great money. Yes. But even River of Dreams went four times platinum. Yes. Yeah. And, and that is not a good record. Right. Yeah. So, no, I, and so for me, the thought is, here is a guy who acknowledges, as I mentioned in one of the previous in, in, uh, iterations of this episode, that Billy Joel acknowledged that a good quarter of his discography is trash. And this is a guy who could have very easily made money putting out perfectly fine but inoffensive to bad mm-hmm. pop records following River of Dreams and didn't do it. Right. I cannot think of another artist in my lifetime who has voluntarily stepped like, out of the limelight. Right. Especially, say. like, obviously, like, careers and, you know, one-hit wonders or even, like, yep. you know, two albums and then You're they done. aren't yeah. able to hit that level again and so they just give up. That's a completely different animal. You know, obviously we ranked them low, but, like, he was still having very significant commercial success through the end of his album release career. And I I totally agree. I really respect that he was like, I don't have more great songwriting to give, so I'm just going to stop filling the airwaves with shit. I'm just going to, I'm going to tour, I'm going to play my hits, because I know those are great songs and I'm proud of them. But I, in, I respect that so much. One yeah. thing I like that he does, and you can hear this in recent live LPs like 12 Gardens, um, and he obviously, right now, he has a pretty consistent monthly residency at Madison Square Garden, is he changes the key signatures to his songs because he can no longer hit the heights of like um, Goodnight Saigon, for instance. But that makes sense. He's in his uh, 50s. More, He's older than Way than older than that. He's closer to his 70s. I was about to say. 50s. Yeah. And... He, um, like, there are people who would try to um, push that off to a different vocalist in there. So I saw uh, Paul McCartney, for example, recently at Austin City Limits, and he would pass off certain vocal passages to someone who could hit higher notes than he could. It wasn't our experience. I was about to say, because we saw him probably on the same tour um, at the, you know, Tinley Park outside of Chicago, and he sang all of every single song. So I wonder if he was having, like, a bad vocal night. It may have been that, but also even, actually, this was more the case, was Brian Wilson. Oh, well, that's that's a different case altogether. For sure. But, yeah. But also, Bryce, didn't you have a story about his, what he wanted his last tour to be? Yes. Um, so this is a quotation that comes... <laughs> And for, for someone can't. Who, for someone who has not right now. For someone who has conventionally pop as uh, Billy Joel is, uh-huh. it was astounding. This is like Bertolt Brecht, okay. way more than Billy Joel. Uh-huh. So Billy Joel was asked about his final tour, um, and he said, <laughs> "This is what his final tour should be." Yes. The stage is... Uh, so this comes from an interview with Vulture by... Uh, the Bryce, we're fucking with you. You already told us this. 
Anyways, the the podcast listeners need to know. No, but in during the podcast. No, I didn't. I don't think I read this. No, okay, read it. Read it. Read it. Okay. So, um, this is uh, in an interview with Vulture magazine. Um, was just he was asked about what his <laughs> final tour should be, and here's what it should be, according to Billy Joel. The stage is a living room set. Couch. <laughs> you literally said this. No, 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 no. Stop. Okay, I'm not letting you do this. Like, ten minutes into this podcast, this episode, you told us about this already. I oh, promise. I okay. <laughs> Bryce. I was willing to let you can like get a little further into it to make sure that it was the, actually the same thing. But oh, yes, fine. you, yeah. you okay. totally... Yeah. You know, and you know what, Bryce? We love it because... <laughs> I think honestly we had a bottle of red, we had a bottle of white, we and a bottle, a bottle of, of rosé, and it was fucking fantastic. We had all the bottles. But more importantly, though, the thing is, Bryce, you started going into this being like, "I'm sorry for making you listen to all this Billy Joel," and I mean this profoundly. You, I don't never know where that apology came from because I, I think I was that person that had that idea of the pop hits in my head. I know where it came from. Is because you specifically were like, I don't want to do Billy Joel. Yeah. When we first suggested this I episode, that. Yeah. I you that. didn't want to do it. Yeah. And the thing is, and so in going into it, I think it was a couple albums in when I'm like, he's a genius. I may truly acknowledge that. So thank you for that. And most importantly, though, Bryce, you're on the last episode of our season, of season three. Yeah. I am so happy about it. The debates that we've had, the jokes, the pranks, the jakes, the discussions. It's been fantastic. I've had a great time. Thank you so much for being here. I've had a great time being both on this twice and then also listening to the, even when you were extremely wrong, as was the case on the Decemberist podcast, like, castaways and whatever, cutouts, Uh whatever the fuck it's called, like, that is not their best record. But... What do you think their best record is? Oh, The Crane Wife. Okay. I, I get that. Yeah. But, that was our second episode. But our second episode was back. You weren't on that. But what right. I like about your what about uh, what I like about the podcast is that the consensus thing is so important mm-hmm. because it makes people realize that, like for example, in the conversation we just had, oh excuse me, uh, the conversation between the construction and craftsmanship of the songs versus quote unquote what Billy Joel is. So, like, for example, even though I have kind of an aversion to an innocent man, hearing Tara describe it made it change for me. Right. In a way that was way more significant than I could have anticipated. The thing about an innocent man is because, like, "Mm, it's it's not what Billy Joel sounds like. It's a whole different sound. Except that it has three of his most iconic songs out of his entire discography. So you kind of can't use that argument anymore. Is it, like... Because it was so successful, it is it is a very significant part of what Billy Joel sounds like. And it's mm-hmm. also a sound that he, you know, toys with in other places in his yep. discography, but obviously it's most prevalent there. But like, you know, as people born in the 90s, you and I, like, <laughs> they, like... An Innocent Man was already very firmly entrenched in yes. what the sound of Billy Joel is. Yes. So, like, you can't... I, I reject that argument. Yeah. You know? yeah. And th- these are two quotations that I know I did not produce okay. mistake. Okay, great. So they are... The two quotations are about what Billy Joel thought his worst song was and what Billy Joel thought about producing more pop music at the okay. present moment. So what his per- worst pop song was, was there's one I would never do, never, pop live, which is Sete Toi from oh. uh, uh, Glass Houses. Yeah. 
I understand. And he said, um, and the annotation on the Vulture interview with him says, uh, Sente Trois, originally released on Glass Houses, uh, the song is sung partly in French, a language that Joel doesn't speak. Joel himself said, quote, this song really sucks. <laughs> wow, I mean, that's, really? That's, okay. Okay. If we're, if we're talking about fucking Paul McCartney moments, <laughs> like, Sente Trois is so blatantly like him trying to go back right to that, no like, and i get that i get that french yeah. like that michelle kind of yeah but in regard to the other thing that joel might do at the present moment in terms of more how, pop music if he were to return to pop music yeah so the interviewer asks him have you been approached about doing a new album and joel says it's happened who's the guy who produced the new johnny cash records and the interviewer says rick rubin and Billy Joel says, yeah, he wanted to do something, bring me back to my roots, whatever that means. Didn't appeal to me. I loved that response. Yeah. Because I think that there's a version of Cold Spring Harbor that could exist without the shitty production that was forced upon Uh him. Yeah. And he chose not to do it. And one of the reasons he chose not to do it was because he knew that Rick Rubin's version of, like, the authentic version of an artist was as constructed as anything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, frankly, a Rick Rubin-produced Billy Joel album would have sold double platinum, yeah. if not more. He already, there's already He already did that with Neil Diamond. He did yeah. two albums with him. So Wait, what? Whole, yeah. Rick Rubin did two Rick albums Rubin with Neil Diamond. Rick Rubin has produced fucking everybody. Yeah. I don't know if Tom you know Petty. this. Rick Rubin has worked with... Rick Rubin... Lincoln Park. Rick Rubin got... His, what? Yes. Yes. Rick Rubin got his foot in the door and then literally worked with whoever the fuck he wanted. Because he, he's a Spengali. Stadium Arcadium? Well, I knew that. What Lincoln Park record? His last know? two, their last two or three. Jeez, I'm not even kidding. Christ. But hey, listen, we're talking oh. about Billy Joel. Do you have a quote about him and what he wanted his last tour to be? Yes, this is his last tour. So, anyway, <laughs> most importantly, though, Bryce, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for being on season three. Taryn, thank you for 45 artists of memories You're and incredible right. and stuff that we've done. The reason I asked is I think Bryce is the longest gap between, between appearances yeah. that we've had. Which is really fun. Y'all should have the, a, a wide range of. Also, artists. you don't live in Chicago. So yeah. That is another problem. I know, but when we do Warren Zevon in season seven, get ready, guys. It's got <laughs> a hot whole takes thing. on the 1995 Guided by Voices, vaguely produced album. Woo! You're near. All right. But in the meantime, though, guys, let us know your thoughts. If you're Billy Joel, email us at thechartographers at gmail.com. Oh, my God. Give us tickets to your show. Facebook, <laughs> Twitter. Find us on there. Rank us on iTunes. We love it when that happens. Most importantly, though, guys, after this, we're taking a good break, but not until we do the second annual Charity Awards. Tune in then. In the meantime, though, 45, ep- 45 artists, 100-plus episodes. Thank you for listening and supporting us. Thank you us. so much for listening. Really. It's really been, like, when we started this thing, <laughs> we had no idea the kind of places it would go to. And I'll say this more on the charties. But, like, the fact we recently passed 17,000 plays, which is, like, not a huge number. But for it's a good. thing that we, like, we're not promoting this, we're just, like, sending this to people we know. Everyone who we don't know who listens to us... Like, thank you so much for being part of this journey. Yeah. It's so crazy to see people in, like, France and New Zealand and Japan. <laughs> like, clearly it's the same user listening to, like, a bunch of episodes. Like, that still, that shit blows my mind. So, thank you to every listener Absolutely. for being here. Even if you don't, like, rate or comment or whatever, like, we still appreciate that you're here. Yeah. I truly mean that. So, in the, and, of course, I think 
in saying that, it should go without saying, keep on listening, because you know that we'll be. Have a good one, guys. See you soon. Goodbye! Bye.